1: Welcome to Forty Twenty not live, for a start. Cats uh, may invade because I'm not in the studio, as you can see. But as you can see, I've been replaced by someone much more uh, taller and handsomer than I am. I'm looking very well, James Child, former match official. You, you, do, you do look well, it has to be said, um, unless the RFL just picked bad pictures of you to stick on their website when I you know look at your retirements. Um, how are you? Are you missing uh, standing in the middle of a field?
0: Not in this weather, that's sure. <laughs> Um, I, I'm, I'm missing the buzz of, of refereeing um, but not, not mostly the stuff that went, that went with it um, if I'm honest it was a sort of a way of life really rather than a job and um, the demands with having a young family um, now I mean that I, I get to spend my weekend doing any one of a number of things um, and we can plan things and, and book things in and have a
2: social life and all those wonderful things I think it's amazing that the eight point try has been invented since you retired. <laughs> you used to get one a season if you were lucky. Uh, now we've had what three in two weeks. it's just it's getting ridiculous
0: yeah there's um uh, there's obviously been a, a slight change to in the interpretation of that that law i suspect since since I finished at the end of last season. and um I suspect that's just in terms of the process of how it how it works week to week is that each week bill. The referees will have a group review, usually on a Tuesday, where they look at incidents from across the, the round, and 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 discuss and debate them and, and come to some conclusion. I can only imagine that the conclusion was after the Warrington game that both eight-point tries were considered to be correct, and in law they they were, because ultimately a foul was uh, occurred on on the try score in the process of trying uh, scoring a try, and um, however the interpretation that we've always applied or I've always applied has been that it's generally been major foul play, not just something that simply otherwise would have been a penalty. And um, they've obviously changed tack. now, whether that's sort of informed by the way that the game's changed in relation to um, the application and, and ruling on foul play. I'm not sure. I'm not parted to that.
1: I mean, we all love... Uh one of these edicts that happens. I remember like the start of last season where everyone was getting sent off and uh, sin-binned for head injuries, and head headshots rather, and then everyone moans, so everyone stops being uh, sent off and, and, and sin-binned. It, it's, it's always good when these things happen in clusters and then slowly die off. And that, uh, Do we think that's going to happen with the 8.3? Or is that going to think, be a thing that uh, continues throughout the year?
0: I think, you know, last year was... You've used the word clampdown, I think, in in previous uh, podcasts, and and it's not a word that we use or ever have used as referees, and it's not one that we would like to use either. Uh, Having said that, last year um, there was a significant change at the start of the year, and then it was changed again probably about a third of the way through the year, and I was probably involved in two of those games, one as a referee on the Huddersfield-Castleford game where we ended up with a number of Simbins match review panel decided to back off from charging some of those in the way that they charged earlier. And then the subsequent week, I was video referee for the Wigan-Castleford game, and we simbined. I can't remember the name of the player, actually. I think it was a Castleford player for a late hit on a passer, which, you know, the interpretation at that point was at any point, once the ball's left, if there's contact on a passer, it's considered to be late. And and that's automatically a simbin without much interpretation that was just ultimately changed off the back of that decision because you know, even I was uncomfortable with that decision recommending a, a simbin. So I think we got to a reasonable place last year. And then with the changes that occurred at the end of this season, into the start of this season, in relation to downgrading some of those offences and meaning that players are less likely to be suspended and probably will get a fine, for example, I think that's had a positive effect. This change in terms of eight-point try that I can I can read between the lines has come about through the group review process, whereby they'll have they'll have had to decide whether the decisions to give the eight-point tries in the Warrington Salford game were considered to be ultimately correct. Now, to the letter of the law, they were correct, but you have to decide whether that's the standard. Is that the standard that we are going to apply this season to the awarding of an eight-point try? And I can only suspect that the answer was yes to that. And that's why. Chris Kendall then awarded one in the whole game because um on the face of it it looked relatively soft. But nevertheless, he tackled him high and you know, anywhere else else on the field it would have been a penalty. So, you know, you can't say it's wrong in law. It just comes around, I guess, the communication of whether an interpretation
2: change has been made. So we've thrown you in at the deep end. We haven't even properly welcomed <laughs> you, and you we're already asking you to explain what oh, yeah.
1: I asked if he missed it. I asked if he missed Well, like, you know, that's that's the that's the easy question. I feel guilty, that's all. <laughs> no, no. The other okay. thing I was going to ask, um, because if I don't
2: ask you now, I'll forget, and then it'll be my fault. Who is responsible when a player is clearly bleeding profusely to get that player off the pitch? Because we've all saw Willie Iser, and I think we would all uh, you know, applaud his bravery. Um, that must have been incredibly painful and to, and to play with that going on. But clearly he had blood all over his face and blood all over his shirt and he was allowed to play on whilst that was happening. I think the referee spoke to him a couple of times and said, you're going to have to go off and get this checked. Whose responsibility is it? Maybe to stop the game or it, should it be when the doctor comes on? And I was just thinking yeah. it looks a bit odd. I
0: didn't think it looked right, if I'm being honest. I, I thought the game should have been stopped earlier than it was. I think the referees are being encouraged to try and keep the game flowing where there are injuries. Um, and so, you know, there's a green card scenario. So, potentially, if the game needed to be stopped, then the physio or the doctor could alert the referee to say, Can you stop the game? And the game would then be stopped. And at that point, they'd have to make a decision whether that player was going to go off for a head impact assessment. Uh, or if they were able to continue playing, because the game's been stopped, they would be issued a, a green card. Now, for me, I think blood is slightly different. Where you see a player player bleeding profusely, that's a safety matter for the other players and himself. So for me, the game should have been stopped as soon as you see a player bleeding. uh, And that player should then be given an opportunity to uh, have that injury treated. If it can't be treated, then he should leave the field. So he gets one opportunity. At the second occasion, if he bleeds again, he has to leave the field immediately. The game may be stopped, but he has to leave the field and have that treated. Um, so the first time you had quite a long delay. It was a scrum, I think, wasn't it? They brought on a second a shirt and, and that sort of stuff. So that can happen. Um, but I, I'd be interested to know whether they, they discussed that as a group, and um, whether there's been any slight change to the um, application of the green card this year. I know that they were encouraged to try and keep 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 the games flowing as best they can.
1: We we are obviously a pro match officials podcast, so we we get enough stick for for sticking up for match officials because obviously you, you don't knock on and, and throw forward passes. Obviously, you miss a few uh, from time to time, especially against whichever team we happen to support at the time. But um, what is creeping in, perhaps? And well, it's been mentioned on commentary by uh, former players: is players cheating, trying to con match officials into getting penalties or? Whatever. How, how hard do how hard do the players make the job of a match official on a weekly basis?
0: Yeah, if it wasn't for the players, it'd be easy, wouldn't it? <laughs> but then we wouldn't have a game,
1: you know. So I, you know, I think
0: since probably eighteen ninety five, players and coaches have tried to find ways to bend the rules to suit their own needs, and that's that's just the game, isn't it? Um, Cheating is probably a strong word. I think we were in a worse place a few years ago where. And it led to a change in the interpretation of the video referee and his role on foul play where you were finding that where a referee had probably missed some contact to the head and it only merited a penalty. The players were staying down because they knew the game would be stopped. Video referee would then come in and basically say, yes, it's a penalty and the penalty was awarded. So that was changed a few years ago. So the ref, the video referee can only come in in those situations where the offence merits a yellow or red card. um, And you know that really, I think, tidied it up to some extent. Um, the more stringent application of the green card, trying to keep the game flowing, has probably helped. I think we've le- seen less um players of trying to slow the game down, and the introduction of the shot clock a few years ago, you know, where dropouts were taking an age, scrums were taking an age. I think that's improved. You know, and I was at the game on Friday. Where I thought the game did flow, there were very few stoppages in the game. And I think where you're getting injuries, there are genuine injuries. Like the ICER incident in the weekend game, you know, he's clearly injured. I don't think players, uh, spectators, people at home watching on TV, mind the game being stopped in those situations.
2: So when fans say players deliberately stayed down to get an opponent sinned in, that, that isn't the case? Well,
0: that may be the case, yeah.
2: if the, You know, that may be the
0: case. Yeah, who can say? Yeah, it, you but know. they have
2: been hit late, so it does deserve looking at.
0: Yeah, and if you look back at the Wellesby incident, you know when he running ran in on the on the shoulder charge by um, Walters. If it hadn't been for Wellesby, the incident probably wouldn't have been seen, and play would have continued. So, the downside, in my view, by not dealing with Wellesby and his actions, is it's almost encouraging the, those actions, and I'm sure that was fed back to St Helens <clears throat> as part of the discussion, sort of. Uh, post match and post review that, that that won't be tolerated um so yeah there are occasions perhaps where players do recognize that they've they've been been hit illegally and and do stay down but who's to say whether that's legitimate or
2: otherwise i'm not a doctor and referees can only deal with what's in front of them and the, the good news is that now some tomkins has announced his retirement it will boost the uh, the ranks of the full-time referee <laughs>
1: <laughs> stole that from me i was going to say that so it
2: wasn't me. I'm joking. So, in t- But in terms of players that you enjoyed refereeing and those that made your life a misery, where, where would Sam rate on a Brian McDermott scale of two to nine? Um, well, I,
1: the
0: players that came up to you and, and, and sort of swore in your face and had a go at you were easy to deal with because you could penalise it, you could sanction it in some way. Players that came up with uh, a legitimate question done in, an, in a, an appropriate manner, he's far more challenging for a referee. you know. Um, so I, I think with somebody like Sam, I think he was more of that kind of person. But actually, probably from a spectator's point of view, you see him coming to the referee quite a bit and you feel as though he's trying to referee the game when perhaps he's not. I think if you're in a situation like that as a referee, if he's not the captain and you recognise that the same player keeps coming towards you, then you'll probably try and resist that conversation and direct it through the captain because... You don't want to be seen to be having the strings pulled, um, but I wouldn't say you know Sam was um, particularly
1: um, challenging in that area. I was. Under, okay. So we it do was, need it was. A, we do need coaches now then to to say to players, go to referees, but ask 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 difficult questions. Ask difficult questions. Don't don't swear. Don't be offensive. Just ask difficult questions and make them make them question what they're doing. But well, that's what I would do if I
0: was a coach. But uh, you know, that's what a captain should be doing. He shouldn't be just asking questions for the sake of asking questions. He should be asking a question because he's genuinely not sure what what's been given or the interpretation of something, so he can feed that back to his players. So it's it's not trying to encourage uh, talk for talk's sake. Uh, and and the referees are not not stupid. They'll soon they'll soon catch on if if they feel a players trying to sort of hoodwink them, slow the game down by having a conversation every
2: person. And and again, we haven't got you here just to talk about refereeing stuff, but while you are here, we can talk about refereeing stuff. Uh, Captain's Challenge, is, is that something you would have welcomed being brought over here, or does that just slow the game down a little bit? Uh, well, well
0: that, before before I'd used it and be part of it during the World Cup and watching it as somebody just watching on TV in the NRL, I, I felt it went against everything that the game is trying to do by keeping the game flowing and... For me, I think the sole purpose of the captain's challenge is to create controversy, to create a talking point potentially. Um, and I don't think my view really changed significantly in the World Cup. Um, it, it depends on you know they've got a bunker system in NRL, so it's far more efficient in terms of the, the time it takes. And so the process this process is much quicker than it than it was in perhaps in the World Cup and, and would be in Super League. And then, obviously, you've got an inconsistency in the competition anyway because you've only got bigger referees at, what, two or three games out of the out of the six each weekend. So you would immediately have an, another inconsistency there. So I think for, from a referee's point of view, it will be great to have it on those occasions where you make a decision and in your heart of hearts, you realise you've probably got it wrong and actually you've got to get out. So you can
2: have a ref's challenge. Yeah, challenge. Almost, yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, and I think you saw that when they first brought it in the NRL, the referees were almost sort of saying to the players... Well, not in that, not because they thought they got it wrong, but almost saying to the players, well, you've got a challenge, use it. And then the players backed off them, but they didn't want to use the challenge. So they, they suddenly went quiet. Um, so, you know, it would have some merit to some degree on those occasions where, admittedly, decisions have been made incorrectly. But, but overall, for me, it depends what the game's wanting to achieve out of it. How we wanted to create a talking point, well, it would do that. How we wanted to keep the game flowing, while well, it goes against that. So I think that's the that's the crux for the for the game to decide, not notwithstanding the broadcaster's view on it.
1: I mean, I do enjoy it on the on the cricket or the NFL where they get it spectacularly wrong. So the referee is proven right, and you'll go, "Well, you're an idiot, aren't you?" But yeah, not not that we should uh, call people idiots. You mentioned the video referee system. Is it a frustration how slow sometimes it is to to come to a decision because everyone at home shouts at the telly. Rod Studd loves it. He 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 can't get enough of video referees in any sport. But when you're there, actually trying to make a decision, is frustrating frustration in how slow the process can be sometimes.
0: Um, I think now people can hear the video referee talking through the decision. I think it makes it easier that people can see the process that's being followed. That you know, if if a tries come from a kick, you've got to go back and check the onside from the kick. So you know, things like that do slow the process down. Where, again, in the NRL with the bunker they would have already checked the onside before it even gets referred. And now with the NRL, they've made the change to basically award a try that's a live decision of a try, and then it automatically gets reviewed. And if the video referee thinks that it needs looking at in more detail, they'll ask the the on-field referee to send it up to the bunker. So that, again, reduces the the time that's taken uh, uh, to slow the game down, really. So there are systems that you could adopt but it would potentially mean a, a, a review system like the bunker system. And, and that cost millions of dollars to implement. So again, it comes back to money for me. So I think I think the, the system works as well as it probably can work.
2: Of all the things that um, we need to talk about over the weekend, I think one of the most interesting, which flew under the radar a bit, was our league live screening the whole Salford game. And the fact that that game had a video referee, which I don't think was used. I can't remember. I didn't see every minute of it. But is that the way Do you think we'll go? I mean, it's sort of an open question to everybody that um, we've called a lot that our league needs to decide what it is and what it should be um, focusing upon and... It's such a mixture of um, different games, which is great to see the sport in its entirety. But if you're ever going to sell it, you've got to have premium products, I think. Um, and, and that seemed to go really well. They're not they're clearly not going to divulge the, the viewing figures, but to have a, an extra game, um, perhaps an electronic season ticket a little bit further down the line and a video referee at that game,
0: that's got to be a step forward. Uh, absolutely. That's the way the game's got to go, in my opinion. And, and ultimately... My view is that that's why our league was created. So long it was a sort of a fairly medium term project where you get people on board in terms of numbers. <clears throat> you can almost sell that because you've got x number, of hundreds of thousands of people that are signed up as members, etc. But you know there was a there was a trial many years ago. In fact, I think Ashley Klein was the video referee on a game at OKR, and that's when he was here. and He left in 2008, so that's how long ago we're going back. There was a trial of a non-TV game <clears throat> with a video referee where you only had. I think maybe two cameras in the main stand, which you'd normally have, and then one at either end. Now, I don't know how many cameras they had at, at the It won't the have whole been much game. more. Yeah, and, but I think, in fairness, you can, you can run a system with probably one at each end and the two that you'd have anyway in the, in the main stand. And So I think that's the way that the game's got to go because you create perhaps more consistency by having video referees at each game because the video referee, remember, is not only used for tries and no tries, it's used for foul play. So you've got the opportunity to review on foul play, which on non-TV games you wouldn't. So, yeah, for me, it's absolutely the way to go. I, I would be interested to, to know the numbers mm. of people that they got paying for it. Commercially sensitive. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. I wouldn't reveal it if I was the RFL. But at £4.95, I wonder who were who are we targeting. We're targeting... The rugby league audience aren't we we're not targeting a new audience I think that's the other question isn't it about our well it depends league. where you advertise it. Well, because you only advertise it amongst mm. the rugby league or that's all you get but I didn't know as somebody that follows rugby league I didn't even know whether it was just exclusive on our league that was a little bit of confusion I thought about that so I think it needs to be made clear that
2: it is exclusively on our league I think and that's we- where I that um, with their digital strategy which is the one thing I'm absolutely confident when they do roll that out Will be different. Make the game look and feel different. I think if they've got that as part of their stable, a game every week that will be released digitally and with probably some degree of marketing behind it, that that I think could be a major step forward. It was almost sneaked in this week, uh, and I'm sure a lot of Salford fans who paid four ninety five felt they had great value for money. <laughs> Just that one- <laughs>
1: second half was worth Wonder- four,
2: five, four pound ninety five, I reckon. Uh-huh,
1: so, my- I- I- all I can hope is Michael Shenton got paid a, a, a fair whack as a Hull FC employee to have to commentate on that game. was uh, well, that, that would have been a, a bit of an interesting situation. I didn't see the game itself, but the, the price point is interesting, isn't it? And, and again, 4 pounds is neither here nor there. I know it goes up to £10 on the day, but there's plenty of examples elsewhere in sport. And ice hockey is the one I always use. They're charging £15 for a game, and you could have two games on a weekend, £15 for a match. So is 495 too cheap? What's now what's interesting
2: is you've got to have that balance between you know, having fans still go to the match and those that sit there and think it there's eight foot of snow on the ground. The M62 is a pig. It cost me 25 quid if I got there, plus the diesel and whatever food I might eat. It makes sense to pay 495. Um, but I think because it was a whole home game and they've got at least seven and a half thousand season ticket holders. Um, the, the passionate Salford fans of which they're hardcore would have gone anyway. I think that was probably a really good one to test that out on. Um, and quite a few people, I think, who didn't support either team were commenting on it on social media. So it did gather an audience. Uh, it's probably about right, because if you are a neutral, you probably would pay a fiver to watch two teams you don't support. Um, it, it's, it's an interesting one. I think you've got to get, as we were saying, to the idea of a digital season ticket and say, look, there's definitely going to be one game every week. So if you pay your hundred quid, you've got access to at least one extra Super League game every single week. Um, there's, there's, you know, maybe it's down to twenty-three rounds or whatever in years to come. But you divide your hundred quid by twenty-three, and that's a really good value for money. And you just get whoever the match is. It might not be your team. It might be your team. You might be going to the game anyway. You might not. But it's a, it's an investment that you will probably make. I agree. I think that's the way to go. But. It- I think the RFL's ambition was to have each
0: game available to watch live, be that on TV or through the hourly gap. And I think then that will happen to stagger your games. You have yeah. one game on a Thursday, one on a Friday. You maybe have, I don't know, two on a Saturday and then two on a Sunday, and those yeah. kickoffs are staggered. So, actually, if somebody really wants to, they can watch every single game out of the six.
2: And I think YouTube as well. You know, if you don't have it on our league, I think you can have a free-to-air game on YouTube, which, again, you wouldn't charge for, but one of those six would be designated as let's just spread the idea of Super League in a, in a marketing manner. Um, it, but I thought that was really interesting. that Almost that was brought in a, a bit surreptitiously at the end of the week. Um, as you say, not heavily marketed outside of the, you know, if you follow the RFL on Twitter, you would have seen it. But other than that, you would have had to have probably been done it through word of mouth. But it's a real, it could be a really significant moment this weekend. Certainly more significant than Wakefield going uh, the entire summer era without scoring a point. So it seems. What? Sorry to mention. Certainly.
1: What? Who? Wakefield in I, crisis. I, I mean, I, I, I the game
2: you were at was. Leeds and Wakefield this weekend. I suspect the, um, the the corporate hospitality on offer was much welcome <laughs> in the first half. Yeah,
0: I, I must admit, um, it, it was a boring game. It was a boring game. It's awful <laughs> to say that it was a Wobbley uh, diehard, but it was hard watching the first half. The, the temperatures perhaps didn't help, albeit it could have been even colder than it was actually. Um, uh, having said that, I actually thought Wakefield was slightly more imaginative on attack. Albeit it didn't translate into points for them. Uh, and unfortunately, I think once Leeds got that first try, particularly the second try, then that 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 was it. Then you just felt the game was over at that point. But um I think similarly, Thursday's game, I, I found that a boring game between Wigan and, and Catalana. And I think that, by and large, that's probably the conditions. Yeah. It's cold, it was, you know, very, very cold. It was, it was sleeting. it was snowing, and and both teams sort of play a fairly attritional game anyway, I think mean, with the conditions they played it even safer. But that's not taking anything away from Catalan and their performance, by the way, but um, I thought the week before with St Helens and Leeds, it was a much more entertaining game. Not necessarily the quality was there, but I thought it was entertaining. I think for me as a product, you've got to find that balance, haven't you?
2: But then but we, know, we know at this time of year as well, those are the kind of games we get. That The one thing I thought was brilliant about Catalan was that they managed to stick to that plan for 80 minutes. And it might have been um, restrictive in the sense that they were never going to throw the ball about. If again, the conditions didn't suit, but to have such a young team out there and and a team that um, the core and the spine of the team hadn't really played together before, to be so disciplined in the sense of they didn't deviate from that plan, I thought that was that was a massive win for them. That probably deserved more credit than it actually got.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I wouldn't disagree with any of that. Um... And I think you're right, you know, as as the weeks go by and the weather gets drier, the pitches firm up, you'll see a different style of play and it's the teams that adapt best to that, isn't it?
2: Although Salford would say they couldn't play any more attractively, whether it was cold, hot, summer, sure. winter. You know, again, that's, part of it is your philosophy and, and obviously which players you've got available in those key positions. The thing about Wakefield as well, without wishing to make Richard cry uh, more than he might have done the is that when Lee Gaskill went off? I just thought that that again was the opportunity of Wakefield scoring going completely out the window. Mason Leno was isolated as really the only creative player that they had and, and struggled a bit in the second half. And um, that, that would be an issue for me if, if, if I was a Wakefield fan. Where is their next point going to come from? Because the longer you go not scoring, the more introverted you tend to become as a yeah, team. And that will affect their confidence. Yeah. You know, I think you're absolutely right. but. Uh, I think they've just got to stick,
0: stick patient, really, Wakefield. I think there are signs there that they've improved in terms of their performances already, but I think you're absolutely right. They need to, they need to get a point, two points at least, on the board early in the game just to start, try and sort of get settle an yeah, yeah. Hey, It's
2: it, it, I- it a record in the summer era that no team has gone three games without scoring a point. So you, you, you don't want that stat being put to the coach every. You know, pre-game and and put to the players every post-game.
1: I'm trying to find the tweet we had earlier where someone said, "I'll wait if you are going to go for a drop goal on." Oh, here it is. Yeah, Andrew. First question to ask is, we "Will wait if we go for a drop goal on their first set of six from the first from the halfway line against Salford on Sunday?" Oh, I mean, I'd go for that. Get it over and done with. And then when we, <laughs> enjoy, we six, six, sixty odd on one. <laughs>
0: yeah, not a chance.
2: I think the other issue that Whitefield have got is isn't there a, going to be a further pitch inspection for their game against Hull KR the following week? Um, that Again, that the, the pitch issue is being brought up and the Huddersfield game, it was very late on that that was given the go-ahead. So they need to, to put that to bed one way or the other because well, uh, if it's not play at home and it's got to be moved, then you know, that, that's going to make I it even more difficult. It will, but I, I think it'll be fine. I've
0: not cut my grass yet since the winter, but I know, I know it needs cutting. I know that's been established far longer than we have. Have got a lot of sand? <laughs> um, but um, if it played the other week, I would say, "Well, what's?" I know we've had snow since then, but it can't have got any worse, surely. Uh,
1: and they must be, it must have improved. Well, we've got a new stand though. We've got a new stand building. I've seen it. It's, it's going to be good. We haven't got a chief executive leaving, but you know, um, before we get cut off and have to rejoin, I should say, at least Michael Carter in his regime has run Wakefield like a business. Um, on, on the what is what is thinner than a shoestring, a piece of cotton perhaps? But the club is solvent, and we've got a new stand, and we're on the ground. and team might be rubbish at the minute, but you know, at least we've got all those it things.
2: Takes us into a discussion on grading, though.
1: Um, uh, yeah, well, we then we haven't even discussed them. I know, we can't even merge with um Castleford because they've got no points either. At least we've got a head coach.
2: (laughs) Have you had chance to um, look in detail at the grading criteria? Are you a a fan and opponent? Do you care? In fact,
1: grading. Yeah, I mean it's been a good week for uh, wait for this because not only did the men not score, but the women didn't score either. So you know that's uh, do we get any points for that?
2: But your new stadium will score on the
1: grading criteria. Yeah, but we'd live next door to Castleford and Featherstone and Leeds and all these other teams, so we won't get points for that. Um, you know, I haven't looked into it in, in lots of detail, only for the fact that I can't change anything, but I've got them in front of me. You get tw- This is 25% for fandom. I'm going to read this out for people who haven't seen it. Encouraging clubs to attract more fans in stadia, stadiums, both at home and digitally. How do you be digitally in a stadium and improve fan engagement contributing to both club and central revenues, which I think means get more people following you on TikTok and sell more shirts. Performance, 25%. Incentivizing clubs to perform on the field and drive fan awareness and engagement. Teams will be ranked between 1 and 36 based on where they finish in the leagues for the previous three seasons. Bonus points to be awarded for teams who win league and cup competitions in the previous season. So that's good for if you win the 1895 Cup. Finances, 25%. And people will see again this phrase coming up, reflecting the success of fan engagement and business performance and rewarding sustainable investment as well as diversified revenue streams and sound financial management. Snake, so that's a tick for Wakefield. 50% for stadium, based on a number of factors, including facilities and utilization, which add value to the fan and broadcast or digital viewer experience and match or exceed competition from other sports and events and 10% for catchment based on the area population and number of clubs in the area with a view to maximizing growth of the sport in the largest markets to generate new fan bases and incentivize in- investment i mean immediately um gentlemen i you know i'm i'm holding up that piece of paper that keithley brought to the meeting saying retain promotion and, in- and relegation it's very important and everything but um That all seems like a a fair framework for growing the sport. Now, whether that's the right way of going is up to people to decide and people either like promotion and relegation or like this or like a mixture of things, but they all seem to be things which we should strive to be, don't they? I think the
2: um, the talking to to Carl Hall, um, who obviously is in charge of a club in League One, which has a degree of uncertainty about how that's going to go in the future... The one thing he said is that it puts the onus of responsibility back on the club. Um, you're now being given a framework by which your club is judged. Um, you're being given the tools necessary to make your club the best it can be. And that area of responsibility goes out of the governing body and just handing out money to what do you bring to the sport? I think that that is a, responsible way of looking at something like this. Um, I think the other thing is, I don't know why it's taking so long. You know, we were told, what, three quarters of the way through last year that this was coming in. We were told that criteria would be announced before the end of last season, so clubs would be able to have a look at it. Uh, We've now been told what the criteria are. I I would think the three of us could sit down and rank virtually every club from one to 36. It doesn't need a lot of um, investigative journalism to say, A club would sit in A spot. Uh, We're being told quite rightly that there won't be enough A clubs to fill Super League, which is the ultimate aim. Um, So you're going to have to have some B clubs in there. You've now got a sliding scale of rating those B clubs. To me, I I don't have a problem with any of this, just the speed of which it's being implemented and the fact that it has to go back to the clubs for them to say so, um, when really I thought we'd employed a to bring this kind of thing in themselves.
0: Yeah, I don't know how, it's, how the governance has played out. I mean, I think IMG would say it's a 12-year project. You know, they're not in it for the short term. And I think it's, for me, it's about getting getting it right. And if it takes a few weeks, a few months longer, then ultimately that's what it, that's what it is. I think my understanding is they're going to issue at the end of this season, um, sort of gradings based on 2023, which will then give the opportunity for the club to have an understanding where they would fit into that structure. And then the determined grade is made in twenty twenty four at some stage. Is that right?
2: Yeah. So the twenty twenty five season is when it when it starts if it gets passed by the clubs on the nineteenth of April.
0: Yeah, and, and that's the bit that I'm not sure on. Um, like you, why bring somebody in unless you otherwise implement what their recommendations are? But I, I think that's just the way that the, the RFL you know is governed uh, that each club has a vote, etc. Um, but I would be highly surprised if it's not voted through. I think there was only there was was one abstention and one opposition last time. I think there were Keithly objects in a couple of abstentions, yeah. that was all. So I think, you know, that there's overwhelming support there. And I think now they put a little bit more sort of flesh on the bones. None of that should really come as any surprise to people. And I think that's probably what people were anticipating. I mean, with the surveyor's hat on, it, it looks very much like how you would, you know, if you took a property to market and invited bids. It's how you'd set out in advance of that process, how you would analyze the offers that were going to come in, how you'd score them, etc. So then you allow the people the opportunity to bid. So in very, very much the same model. And um, the question remained:
2: is is that
0: appropriate for sport?
2: It is for a sport that doesn't have enough finance and is partly full time and partly part time. I think again, you look at the history of promotion and relegation within the sport of rugby league going right back to 1895. It just promotes a boom and bust mentality, which means the sport itself can never go forward. And if we take Keithley as an example, the only way currently, I know they object to to this way of doing it, but the only way currently they could get into Super League would be to probably put together a team that they can't afford to sustain. So they would need to buy players to the absolute um, maximum of the salary cap to get them over the line on the pitch, that's not a sustainable model with everything else that's behind them in terms of their ground capacity, their junior development, all the things that this is asking for. So I don't have an issue that, I think there's two things. One is just because you have a grading system, it doesn't mean that promotion and relegation is gone. You can move up and down the ladder depending on how you run your business. Absolutely. So you're not saying it's either or. But the other thing is we've got to structure Dragging the game back to its lowest common denominator. So if clubs are overspending to get to the point where they're in a false position, that doesn't help them or the sport. And that's what I think. This and there's no guarantee by against... spending all
0: that money. Exactly,
2: they would win that because it ultimately comes down to a
0: championship grand final, doesn't it? A million pound game, we'll call it what you wish. And eighty minutes, anything can happen. So there's no guarantee. You can spend all that money, and then and then suddenly you then bust because you haven't got. Super League for me I think it's a transparent system people can see what what targets they need to meet and it will take clubs time to meet those targets clubs who are graded a C for example aren't going to turn it around in 12 months but at least they can see that and if you're an investor wanting to come in and invest in a club that's on a grade C at least you can then see well these are the areas that I need to improve on this is my current score this is the score I need to get to to a grade grade B licence or a grade A licence And then
2: you've got, you can target, you spend accordingly. And it's not just on players' wages. And we are short of investors and new investors. And that, again, is a blueprint that says, if you're in an expansion area or you're taking over an existing club, you know exactly where your investment is going. Now, the whole Toronto thing, uh, when we look at it and re-examine it, you know, the amount of money that was spent on that club was phenomenal. How it was spent and whether it was spent wisely at the end and whether Um, debts were honoured or whatever. That's a different issue to the fact that a huge amount of money was put in by an owner. 10,000 new fans were brought to the sport in a new market. But because of the way of things like promotion, relegation and other restrictions put on that club that they had to meet all the costs of the teams that were coming to play there, that investment has ultimately been completely and utterly wasted. And we're not a sport that can afford to do that. Um, This way, I think if you you wanted to take over a club that was going to score immediately on Um, It's catchment area. So you wanted to invest, let's say, in a Newcastle who might score two straight away on that. You need to know what you have to do in the other areas of the club to make it sustainable. As an investor coming new into the sport, I'd say that's a responsible way of looking at it. I don't have to buy my way through the divisions. I don't have to waste money uh, in areas that I know is not going to have a return for three or four years. I can target a business plan to the objectives that are put out on that. I actually think this is a really responsible way of going about um, future-proofing, which is a horrible word, um, clubs and the
1: sport. And we should
2: actually be welcoming this.
1: Well, most, most clubs have. And the thing that surprises me about Keithling necessarily is not their objection to whatever they think is going to happen, but they seem to be a pro- progressive club. They seem to be a club that are trying to do things in the community to attract different audiences, which is the kind of thing that would get your points on on this system. They are trying to engage new audiences, which, as we know, have been lacking in rugby league for, well, since 1895, I guess. So they are trying to do things. They are, I guess, improving fan engagement and driving fan awareness and engagement. And they've got that promotion. They've got the off-field stuff there. So they have a chance of becoming, in the future, a club in Super League from what they're doing off the field as well as on it, and you're right for for a Keithley for a, you know to use other examples, let's say Oldham, Swinton, Rochdale, any basically any team in League One, unless you've got someone who's going to come in and and throw millions and millions of pounds at a squad, you know the dream doesn't exist, the dream is not real, it's the same in football. Blackburn Rovers won the Premier League in the mid-90s because their owner had a load of money and bought some good players. But they're now where they are. And the the new money has come in and, and become, Man City have gone from the third division to a, a giant in the Premier League. But 20 years ago, when they didn't have that money, they weren't there. So well, also, sustainability you, is a good idea.
2: If you're coming in as an investor as well, one of the things that's going to count against you is if your investment is the sole reason why you're um scoring points on finance so what you've actually got to do is not just invest in a in a club that is going to do well on the field you've got to invest in areas like how do you deal with your fans what is your stadium like um now all those other issues mean that it's not just about you bringing money it's about how the club spends that money responsibly so um i i would prefer um if we were in, a, in an area of governance whereby once we'd agreed the 12-year deal with IMG, once we'd set up a board of RL commercial, that superseded the Rugby League Council for decision making. So if IMG have proposed and the and the Rugby League Council board agree that this is what we're doing, we implement it. Because um, I would have liked to have seen that we went through this whole process with unanimity, because it shows that the game is moving in the right direction. That the problem again for me with Keithley's objection and um, how vociferous it's been and handing out an alternative paper when the criteria are released, is that that will always be picked up as a news story. It, it has to be. But the problem then is that you, you instead of looking at the whys and wherefores of what we're doing and why it might be responsible and moving the game forward, we've always got division. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure we need division at this time when we're, we're going to market to negotiate with a, a television broadcaster
1: and we're looking forward to the wider rebrand of the men's and women's super league competitions later this year ahead of the 2024 season launch by IMG sister company and cultural marketing agency i don't know what that means 160 over 90 cultural marketing i didn't i think do that in a level business studies in the uh, late, late 90s but uh, we'll see we'll see what happens it, it's all it's all very interesting it's all as One of the say, challenges of the
0: licensing system that we had before, talking on the field here, was that you ended up with too many games towards the end of the season that were meaningless. So I'm not sure what, what does this system do that, to counteract that?
2: Because it, it your on-field
0: performance only counts for a small, you know, what is it, 20
2: 25% of your overall Score The corollary of that, that it gives you a chance to build clubs so that as and when we get more A-grade clubs, they are, in, you you know, it doesn't do the NRL any harm that clubs from year to year can change their position on the league table because there isn't relegation behind them. Uh, I, I, I would cite um, Catalan as the perfect example of that, that they were absolved from relegation for the first three years. They would have gone down initially before they'd even had chance to to build a club, to taste the, the, the atmosphere of Super League. But look at them now, you know, 15, 16, 17 years on, they've won a Challenge Cup, they've been in a grand final, they hold the record for the, the highest attendance of a Super League game. That They were able to build their business initially that now makes it sustainable further down the line. And looking at their performance on um, Thursday night, and, and particularly all four games they've played this year, when they of all clubs had more players playing in the World Cup than anybody else, I think what they've got now with more young French players coming through is something that is going to stand them in good stead. That every time we sit and do our predictions at the beginning of the season, we've got them more at the top end than the bottom end. I think it was almost criminal what happened to Toulouse last year, that they were almost in that same boat. That We've got a, a city in France that is a rugby city that's one of the, the fourth biggest in France. It's It's got some huge industries there. Um, they've got a, a, a ground, um, which I, you'll have refereed at, that, mm. that is a great facility. Um, but we'll never know how good they would have been because of promotion relegation it meant that, that that business almost went to the wall because they were relegated. But they were always going to be relegated in their first year. That's when they were going to be vulnerable. And they wanted to play those players that have got them out of the championship to at least give them the opportunity. I think that's what we've got to stop. And that on the field there will always be meaningless games. They'll always, you know, there's been a 60 0 already this year. Um, you can't control that. The the salary cap is evenly spread in the in the NFL, but there are still some blowout scores in matches. There, there yeah, are I teams- think,
0: for me, I don't think it should be about uh, eliminating blowout scores because you'll have that. I think yeah. what you want is uncertainty of results. Absolutely. And I think you saw that the weekend, didn't you? Because yeah. how many people would have predicted that Lee would have beat St. Helens? Exactly. You know, and I think the more games you get where you've got uncertainty of outcome the more people will be engaged with the sport and hopefully that will be a byproduct of of the the grading system
2: and i think you get in there if you do that because as i said there's always a league. Uh, you know the nfl is a classic example everybody spends maximum salary cap they, they have a draft to make sure that the college players go to the least ranked team you would think that would be a you know a competition whereby you know you wouldn't be able to predict any result any week but but what is it Of the 18 rounds, after 12, there's already teams that can't qualify for the playoffs. So that's where it does come down to how you manage your roster, how good your coach is. Um, Yeah, I think we'll get to that with a system like this. But with promotion relegation, there's too much looking over your shoulder, unsustainable business models. Stick with this. Have a slight expansion element with your catchment area so that there is an encouragement to say to, areas like Cornwall or France. I mean, I think this is geared up to the French team as, as much as anyone, London particularly. Um, there's an extra incentive for you that other clubs who are traditionally based won't have. Um, and actually, the new clubs that come in will be sustainable and competitive sooner rather than later. And, and I think if, that, if that's what we get, then your, your uh, right concern about games that don't matter will, will actually be less relevant. Mm.
1: I mean, if it gives gives clubs a kick up the backside to try and find new supporters, I mean wait for the example there. Michael Carter for years has, has banged on about wanting was it six six and a half thousand to spend a full salary cap? Salford have been to two cup finals in recent years and their crowds are I don't know if they're stagnant or not, but they're not they're not growing no. by thousands, are they? You know. no. Lee also Lee, I thought it was
2: really telling comment by Troy Grant, um, who obviously, um, the head of the the IRL, who who when he saw some of the social media debate about whether grading was a good or a bad thing, actually said, you know, the heartlands were not as supportive as the World Cup. Perhaps he would have hoped. Um, Now, again, there's a bigger debate about ticketing prices and uh, where the matches were staged and all that. But it's interesting that somebody who doesn't come from our competition and viewed it from the outside said, you know, Yes, there is an element of you have to support what we've already got, but let's not lose sight of the fact that purely those areas are, are not going to sustain the game on their own. Which, which, is just, I thought, was a very interesting comment. It is, but I think international
0: sport allows a greater cut through, doesn't it? Mm. You know, if you live in London, you never watched rugby before, and but you've got an interest in following an England team, you're more likely to go and watch it if it's a London Broncos team for Example or another London team, then you may be slightly less inclined. I appreciate it's still London, um, but I think that's the beauty of international sport, and that's that's unfortunate why the game as a whole can't all buy into it.
1: Which is great that we're taking the next England internationals to that, uh, great non Heartlands place of, of Warrington. But but there you go, we should praise, praise Lee a bit more, and and, and I. I want to give them praise in terms of my point after the first game was, right, you've done all this stuff for game one. What are you doing for game two? What are you doing for game three? They are doing things for each game, which whether sustainable or not, at least they were giving it a go. And they've got the results on the pitch now as well, especially that win over St. Helens on uh, Friday. You know, as much as uh, we can all have opinions about Lee and the way things sometimes are run at the club, they've started well, started better than many expected. They certainly put pressure on two teams who haven't got any points below them in the table. Uh, and St. Helens as well, of course, were rubbish because they've only won one game.
2: I um I I think you're right that what we need to do is praise them for, for what we can see. I I personally would think that um I know all of this is being financed by Derek Beaumont. I also know that probably what the what I would be advising them to do particularly, again, looking at how the game may unfold going forward, is that somebody should be talking to him about his use of social media. I don't think that does necessarily engage new fans. Um, And in terms of what he's about to put out, and we've obviously seen with the whole Gary Lineker case, you know, freedom to put out what, what, what you think is appropriate. I just think as an owner of a club, it wouldn't do him any harm to have that kind of a buffer where he thinks he's about to tweet. He's got somebody he can send it to that says, actually, that's probably not the thing that the owner of a club should be saying at the moment. Um, There are lots of good things you could be saying. There's lots of things you could be revelling in that that you're responsible for at the moment. But some of the things that he says and the manner in which he goes about his business, I'm not sure is in the best interest of the sport. That said, the players he's bought, um, not he's bought, but obviously he's, he's put the money up to make sure that the coach gets the kind of squad that he wants. The fact that they have really bought into this, we need to make the, the game day an experience. All of that is to be praised. The fact that they came from behind to beat St Helens, I think says a hell of a lot about the, the durability of that team. Um, and as you say, if you put points on the board early in the season, it puts enormous pressure. Um, it may well be that they are still involved in a scrap at the bottom at the end of the year. But if you've already got four points on the board, there's an element of freedom that you can play with in the knowledge that they haven't got this kind of pressure on them that Wakefield and Castleford have already, you know, a month in. Um, so, yeah, let's praise them for what they're doing. But but I just would request of him, and it's nothing to do with me, that he's just, a, a I don't know, a, a little bit more
1: um, conservative in what he puts out there and the manner in which he puts it out. Social media gems. That, that's, that's been great for uh, for the match officials, hasn't it? Because never has it been easier just to you know midway through a game, players snag off your decisions or whatever. you must be you must really praise those who invented the the ability to to send a message within seconds of you getting something obviously completely and utterly wrong because everything you do is wrong or did did was wrong. Now you're perfect. But everything you did on the pitch was wrong. You yeah,
0: know, there's a reason why I came off Twitter about. 12, 13 years ago. Because you're more intelligent than the rest of us. I was just inundated with abuse. So I just decided to not, you know, inflict that upon myself. But most of the other referees are on it. And you know, fair play to them. But um I, you know, I I didn't want to open myself up to that, albeit I did did, did get some uh, via my other social media. But I think Twitter in particular um invites invites that sort of comment. I think there were too many examples for me last year where players active players were being critical of match officials on Twitter. That, that for me, is unacceptable, brings the game into disrepute and, and should be sanctioned by the RFL. I'm not sure how many of those cases were. I know some were, but not, not necessarily every one of them. And I not have to say that people can't have an opinion, but I think you know the way it's done is is not great. Having said that, I think there's a better... I think there's a place for, for the match officials department to speak a little bit more publicly about decisions you know, the fact that we've seen three eight-point tries in, what, two weeks or thereabouts, that is a talking point. And you do have to ask, well, why is that? Has there been a challenge to interpretation? And I think, you know, that they would sort of say, well, we're having those discussions with the clubs, but I think the wider game probably should know that. Now, whether that's being fed through media, I don't know. Um, but I think, that it, I think there should be a role for, for perhaps a bit better communication. So people feel that referees are never heard from, and, you know, they're not interviewed post-match, and I get that. But, you know, we, we implemented a few years ago, it was a few years ago now, you know, Ask the Ref on, on Twitter. And it it didn't work that well. It worked probably quite well initially. But you, you you got somebody that sort of asked a legitimate question. You know, you you put your hand up and said, yes, we got it wrong. And then you got shot down for saying, well, you got it wrong. You should have got it right. Well, so you couldn't win in some respect. And, and other questions where you said, no, the decision was correct, and you explained why it was correct. They still thought you were wrong, anyway. So, it just didn't really work as you know, as a, as a method. So, I think there probably are ways. You're never going to convince somebody black is white and vice versa. But I think if you can set out perhaps some reasons why decisions have been given or, or not given. So, for example, the you know the, the Walters incident the other week. You know that that in my opinion was a mistake by the referee. It wasn't. He made a live judgment which from his position was difficult to to see whether it was a shoulder charge or not. The angles we saw were all completely different angles that showed it much more clearly. The video referee didn't give input on that occasion because he didn't feel it merited a sin bin. Um, And so the referee and the the touch judges were left to their live view of the incident. And ultimately, in my opinion, they made an error of judgment. Now, people probably don't realise that I suspect that that was the conclusion out of that. Whereas so then people are left a little bit confused of what is that shoulder charge or not? Do you have to rotate, for example? I think it just, for me, it's just providing that clarity to people. That's not to say mistakes will happen in the future because you have to make decisions in live play.
1: They've got to be perfect. We need to get the, we need to get um, AI robot referees who make no incorrect decisions because obviously, everyone on a rugby league pitch and in the stands is perfect. I mean, I know, Phil, you never make any mistakes in your match reports. You never make any spelling errors or anything or give players the wrong mark out of 10.
2: All the time.
1: It's a game of opinion. And and the thing is, that's
2: what we thrive on that. So we shouldn't shy away from that. Um, It's also, you know, a game of decisions. And, uh, you know, as you just said, in life, you're going to make some wrong ones, but... I don't think we need to apologise for that. I think we do need to explain it. Um, and, and and that's the thing. The, the other thing we've always said why we, we wouldn't criticise a match official is there's no one incident that ever determines a game. The later it comes in the game, the more people think it's determined the game. But clubs have 79 and a half minutes to determine their own fate. Um, so... It's not like football where games are going to end 1-0 and that 1-0 could be a penalty and that penalty decision is the wrong decision and all the focus is on that. We have 79 and a half minutes of... You know, the club's deciding how that game is going to go, whether they're disciplined, indisciplined, standing offside, you know, forward passing, knocking the ball on, missing a tackle. So the one, focusing all the time on one thing that a referee may or may not have got wrong. You've got to get away from saying that was the reason why a team won or lost. It it rarely, if ever is. But the reality is that's never going to change.
0: No, no, absolutely. that's never going to change because it's easy easy to point the finger at a decision. And we live in a
2: blame culture.
0: Yeah, and that you know that's not going to change. Look, for me, it's about communicating if if that decision was perceived to be wrong, um, just to provide clarity going forward. You know, I listened to Willie Peters talking about the game this weekend. He was um, he sort of said he would be seeking clarification basically around how the Rook was refereed and the application of six against. Now that's slightly different because that's not a one-off decision. That's a an interpretation. I suspect it was because they only received one set restart. Now I don't know how many set restarts. in it was Warrington they played, wasn't it? I don't know how many set restarts they received. But what you often find is that um, find there'll be it. there'll be an imbalance in that in that number, um, and so you know there's a, sometimes a pressure on, on referees to to demonstrate balance. Now balance doesn't mean that the numbers should be equal, not at all. Well, possession is going to determine that yeah, absolutely, but but ultimately you should just referee what's in front of you, and and if the pep, if the set restart or the penalty count ends up lost flopsided, then that should reflect what's happened on the field, um, and you shouldn't be artificially massaging numbers um, just to show balance. That's not what balance is about, but it's about it's about it's about consistency. Four one. 4 one in terms of set restarts well you know when you've only given five in a game it's very easy to point at an imbalance because it's not it's not a massive number so what do you want it to be three two and suddenly you've got balance you know so i think it's big it's a bigger picture than that um you know the, the rook is obviously a tricky area of the of the game to officiate and it's probably tricky to to have a you know 100% consist- consistency from game to game um, you know, that, that is a tricky area. It's one-off decisions that are perhaps easier to explain and, and provide clarity on.
2: Is six again an advantage, or has that placed an impossible onus on referees? With it, we want the game to be quicker, but also we're looking for reasons why an interpretation is slowing that game down. And and to a fan, interpretation is never good uh, because we think it's the referee showing a a favouritism rather than there's a, a rule or a law it's been broken it's a high tackle it's a shoulder charge whatever it might be Yeah
0: I'm, I've seen a bit of criticism recently about set for me I think they work well um, it, it does give greater flow to the game um, but um, yeah I think sometimes when you're at a game live you, you may not understand why it's being given when you watch it probably on the TV you probably have a better view of that individual rook but in the old days when a penalty was given for hand on the ball, did you have any more idea that a penalty was given for hand on the ball than a set restart being given? You'd argue, well, the referee gave a signal, so you'd look at the signal for what that particular rook offence was. Was it a leg pull? Was it a hand on ball, for example? You'd see a signal. Yeah, that perhaps provides some clarity, but I think overall the set restart uh, system works. You would still have coaches saying there's an inconsistency in the application of penalties for ruck interference, whether that was a penalty or a set restart.
2: So I don't think it's changed. I think it's about slowing down the road that certain teams are perceived to hold on to the absolute maximum and don't get penalised for um, a set or or don't get a penalty against them. Whereas other teams that are seen to be playing the ball quickly, um, then their fans start getting upset at the fact that you know, they're being prevented from doing yeah. that. I think having you know, acting half-backs who are constantly waving their arm around doesn't help. Well, it, it, in terms of referees' review,
0: the, the, the uh, each game is statted uh, independently um, by Opta, or Perform, I think they're now called. They stat the games in terms of rook speeds. They stat the 10 metres, so the referee is scored in terms of his own review on his accuracy of setting his 10 metres, and he's scored in terms of the speed of the rook and you'll be able to see whether there is an imbalance in speed between one team or another. That may not be attributable necessarily to the referee. That that rook timing is split between initial uh, contact and the tackle being completed. That's phase one. And then phase two is once the tackle's called, has been completed to the ball being played. So that's phase two. Phase two is, is something that, The referee probably controls a little bit more because he's complete. He calls when the tackle's completed, and then the ball's played. the The first phase, initial contact to the uh, the move call, is trickier because if you get a game that's more upright tackles, then you're going to have slower rucks because players will probably be held upright initially for a split second before being put on the ground. And uh, you know some coaches will still talk about trying to prevent this upright tackling, but every Every change has a knock-on effect. So if you try and prevent the upright tackles, you you potentially limit the offloads. And the offloads, for me, create a different dynamic to the game, take away a little bit of structure, and players then start playing a little bit more off the cuff. So for every change you make, it has a knock-on effect. And for some coaches, it suits their style and their playing squad, and for others, it doesn't. So the game as a whole, when they make changes like that, have to think about what's best, in the best interest for
2: the game overall. And I would say set restarts work well as they do. You see, you talk about explanation, there you have it. I shall never complain about a six again again. (laughs) I'm sure you will. (laughs) No, but I I understand now the theory behind it, which I'm not sure has been explained. You can put it down as this is how we're going to administer it. But when you talk about it in practice on the field, suddenly it makes a hell of a lot more sense. I think
0: one of the main reasons it was introduced was you saw certain teams, particularly on the defensive line, on the goal line, willing to just concede a penalty because that allowed them to reset their line. Whereas actually a set restart doesn't allow you to do that. You're still against a scrambling defence and suddenly you've gone from tackle four to tackle zero and you've got to defend that set. And that's really the main reason why it was brought in, to stop those teams from deliberately slowing the game down,
2: resetting the line. Um, And I think that's worked. I also think what's worked is giving more penalties at scrums for offside that are no longer differential penalties because teams were standing up offside to stop scrum moves. And I think we've seen more penalties this year.
0: But I don't know whether that's true. You may have seen proportionally more penalties, but I think that's because teams have more teams have decided to trap the ball in the second row. Now, that they would argue it's to bring the scrum half round to allow that attacking opportunity, and I've seen that on a few occasions, and it's worked effectively. There was a scrum try in the Huddersfield game. It wasn't perhaps in that situation. They were two in the whole cast game in round one when I was there. So that's working perhaps a little bit more. And the, the change of the law where teams were allowed to bring the scrum to the centre field has allowed that opportunity to open up. But you know, for me, I think it's partly to do with the players and less to do with the referees. I don't think referees are applying the offside law on scrums any differently to than what they did last year. It's just that the way that teams are playing now is different. More teams are being caught out perhaps early on with going a little bit early on the scrum, I think as they get used to that, they'll probably be a little
1: bit more disciplined to hold that line. James is the youngest person here. Phil, do you remember when they actually put scrum, uh, the ball in the scrum in the middle? <laughs> I remember Hooker's
2: being sent off
1: <laughs> uh, for technical
2: offences. It was called. I've no idea. Dark arts. Well, we definitely don't <laughs> want to go to those days, do we? You know, we don't want
1: scrums that last five five minutes or seventeen a game, which we had no, on no, stage. We, we used to think that was entertainment. If we want to do that, we can watch something else, but you know. Um well well done to all the teams who won in the Challenge Cup because we're running out of time. Uh especially Halifax, who probably caused the upset of the round. Uh sadly,
2: an Upset or a shock. I heard that on a radio station this morning. You know, the, I don't think it's a shock when a team at the top of the championship beats another team at the top of the championship. It, you know, it, it's it's a great result for Halifax, absolutely no question.
1: Um, but I wouldn't have said that was a shock. Well, compared to everything else in the cup this week, it probably was because there was nothing else happened. Um the, I mean, the big disappointment is that Hunslet lost to Keithley, so we can't get Hunslet versus Hunslet in the next round. And mm-hmm. if if, commu- if community clubs aren't amateur clubs, why aren't Hunslet, Hunslet, Crl F L and Hunslet, anyway, that's just semantics. I'm getting dragged off onto a tangent. Uh, well done to Saints, who will bounce back from their uh, awful form uh, to beat Hull this week, though. So and congratulations to them on the telly uh, on, I think that's Friday night, isn't it? So that'll be good. Yeah. Castle um, leads on. And, and and proof again yesterday that I was right all along Wakefield, Castlewood and Featherston should merge their women's teams but say about that. anything else and the has been launched so the w- yes that's, that's this uh, week. yeah so that's, that's exciting Leeds got their squad numbers yesterday I saw so first the-
2: time the names will be on the back of the shirts which again is moving into that realm of we want recognisable people that we can tell stories about. So let's hope that all the wheelchair
1: teams start to do that soon. Tom Halliwell on street, come dancing and Master Chef and Love Island and everything. We're not taking him away from planes, so we can't do that. Uh, James, thank you very much for your time this evening. Um, are, are you going to come back on? Are you going to come back in?
2: Uh, yeah, I'd like to think so. Yeah. Oh, no. I, I
1: I think he may have passed the audition. <laughs> well, so I'll save all the questions about, so which plays don't you like for when, when we're off the air next time and when I'm in the studio. Uh, Phil, the new magazine is out this week. Yeah, a few uh,
2: talking points in it as well. We look at the the trans issue in, in rugby league, whether that ban is fair or not. And a big piece about is it inevitable that rugby league and rugby union uh, will at some point come so close together um, that there's only one sport called rugby.
1: What was mascot banging on about this rugby 11s going on in Japan? What's, what's that all I've about? No, no idea. idea. Has he just made it up? Is it is it, is it a made-up thing? I think he's got the rights to something, but I've no idea what it is. I've got the rights to a made-up team in North Korea, but I don't know. Uh, James, enjoy your uh, your retirement. It, it looks like you are, which is good. You're not going to do a Rob Hicks and come back, are huh? you? will just pretend to retire. Oh, well, you
0: never
1: know. You never have no <sighs> idea. <laughs> Right, Frank, the Frank Sinatra of rugby league, apart from the, uh, without the mafia connections, uh, allegedly. Right, How do I get out of this? Um, James, thank you. <laughs> Phil, thank you. Buy the magazine. Uh, I'm, I'm off to uh, hide.